everyone. Welcome to the Natasha Crane podcast. In today's very secular culture, there is a lot of popular level wisdom that passes as self-evident truths that we should just all accept. Statements like, hey, you live your own truth. You are enough. Authenticity is everything. God just wants you to be happy. You shouldn't judge. These are all claims about reality that sound good, but are they really good when we define good by the standard of God's word? Well, in today's show, I'm welcoming back my friend Elisa Childers to talk about the lies we hear in culture and how secular wisdom so often fails. That's what Elisa's brand new book is all about. It's called Live Your Truth and Other Lies, exposing popular deceptions that make us anxious, exhausted, and self-obsessed. Elisa is a speaker, an author, podcaster, blogger, and host of a very popular YouTube channel. I'm so happy to have her on today. Welcome to the show, Elisa. Oh, always great to be with you, Natasha, and always love talking to you. In fact, whenever we are going to record, we end up talking more off air than we even do on the air. I know. We've already been talking for half an hour, but we're going to jump in specifically (laughs) to your book, which, like I said, is just outstanding, and I hope that so many people are going to read this. Uh, You know, I started reading the book, and it's funny because I was already underlining stuff just six pages into it, and here's the first thing that I underlined in the book. Uh, You're talking about the nature of authority, and you say, reader, I'm going to make a bold claim. I think that ditching the jargon and clinging to the timeless truths of the Bible is the most freeing and stabilizing thing that we can do. So this struck me because you had to say it's a bold claim. And in today's culture, it is a bold claim. But it's also sort of a sad thing that we've gotten to this place where trusting in God's word feels so foreign to us. So in a culture where people really tend to resent this idea of authority that's external to yourself. Can you explain why you say that trusting in the Bible is the most freeing and stabilizing thing that we can actually do? Yeah, well, I'm glad you highlighted this because it really demonstrates my heart behind the book. So I'm not only trying to dismantle and tear down false ideas and say, no, this is wrong because of X, Y, Z, but I actually want to build back uh, a a structure that that will give the reader an idea of why it's actually more beautiful to live according to the truth. So it's not just the no's, but it's like, here's why the yes and the truth or the fact of the matter is so beautiful. And so I think when it comes to biblical authority, I would say, number one, the, it's the most freeing and, and stabilizing thing to do is because I believe there's good evidence to trust the Bible as God's word. Um, but aside from that, I would also say that... Um, If you just like go on social media, go on TikTok, go on Twitter, it seems like, and I know that a lot of people feel this, but it seems like you kind of have to keep checking to find out what you're supposed to believe today. Cultures, uh, views on everything from sexuality to gosh, what, you know, what's a a morally good thing to eat or do as a person. I mean, all of these things are constantly changing and they change. It seems like, I mean, this might be hyperbolic, but it seems like they change every single day. This is why people have to go back and delete tweets from a couple years ago that, you know, don't represent the cultural norm anymore. And it's not enough to just say, hey, we we used to believe this. Now we believe this, you know, shame on us or whatever. But you actually have to delete those things or you get canceled. I mean, people have lost jobs. They've lost livelihoods. They've lost friends. They've lost their communities over not keeping up with how fast culture's ideas on certain things uh, are changing. And so I think the one of the reasons that placing our trust in God's word is so freeing is because it doesn't change. 
it is this very because it's because it itself is a stable foundation. So when we stand on that, culture is going to swirl around us. It's going to get on its hamster wheel of ever changing ideas. But God's word is the same. In fact, God, God is the same. The Hebrews tells us Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we have this stability and this peace and this freedom, knowing that we are always on the right side of everything if we're standing on God's word. And that, I mean, if there's not a better definition of stabilizing, I don't know what is. And so that's that's the message I hope to convey to people is that putting your trust in the Bible as God's authoritative word is not just like this, you know, white, let's white knuckle it and just believe the Bible because that's what we're supposed to do. And that's what our grandmas did and all of that. No, it's actually um, in a very practical way. It's going to be something that will bear a lot of fruit of peace in your life because you you don't feel like you have to you know check your Twitter every five minutes. In fact, you can be on Twitter or not be on Twitter. It doesn't matter because you're going to be anchored in truth that doesn't change. And and uh, recently, Natasha, I spoke with a young lady who is uh, she's probably 20 years old. She's a college student. And she became a Christian in college. She was not raised in a Christian home. I hardly ever get to talk to somebody who's young like that, who wasn't <laughs> raised a Christian. So I even asked her, I said, what was it that was so appealing to you about the gospel? And she articulated something very similar to what I just said. She said, all my friends are completely just run by social media. They, they constantly have to be keeping up with things and posting the right things and the right hashtags and advocating the right causes and all this stuff. And she said, when I learned that I could put all of that onto Jesus and trust in Jesus for my salvation, and, and you know, then, then that was very stabilizing for her. And of course, along with that, she articulated how the Holy Spirit revealed to her. She was a sinner in need of a savior. And that was actually good news for her because she kind of knew that anyway. And so I, I think that uh, it's a really long answer to a simple question, but it's because I so deeply believe it's true. Trusting in the Bible, is just, it just gives you peace in your life. Yeah, that's an amazing story about that girl because you're right. We don't hear those kinds of stories so much. So that's so encouraging. And I love how you bring up freedom. You said freedom several times in that. I think that most of the time when people think of authority, they think of it as somewhat uh, opposed to freedom, right? If you have an authority right. over you, then you are not free. And when we have that wrong definition of freedom that we're working from, then we think that we're most free when we're out doing anything that we want, when we're not you know, so, so-called tied down by something external to the self. But in reality, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's Galatians 5.1. Yeah. That's actually my kid's Bible verse right now in homeschool. And I was just thinking about that as you were talking because it's just so true. It is a freedom when you're under a good and rightful authority. And I think that is, that's such an important thing for Christians to understand, especially Christian youth who are surrounded all the time by the social media that you're talking about and all the things that they're seeing. They think, well, I want to be free to do whatever I want, but that's not a godly biblical definition of freedom. And when we, we yeah. really understand that and internalize that it is freeing to be under good and rightful authority so that we can have peace an ultimate lasting peace, then that is something that is so incredibly valuable. So I, I love how you highlight that in the book. Well, in the book, you tackle all kinds of popular ideas that from a biblical perspective are lies, as you say in the title. But it also strikes me that so many of these are just 
flat out illogical as well. So in other words, you take the, if you take these things to their natural conclusion, you can see that they just fail, whether you're a Christian or not. So yeah. for example, in your chapter on the lie that you should quote unquote live your truth, you quote several popular writers. And I just want to highlight one for listeners as an example. One says, to grow, to relax, to find peace, to become brave, we must witness one woman at a time doing the thing that is revolutionary for her, living her truth without asking permission or offering explanation. So I I suppose that that can sound liberating at first, but no one believes that we really should live without any kind of boundaries. If I want to live my truth by killing every toddler I see, absolutely no one would glorify the fact that I didn't ask for permission or offer explanation. We all intuitively know that there are moral limits to this kind of thinking, though people really don't acknowledge that when they make statements like this. So I'm curious, why do you think that as a culture, we're so desperate to feel like we are living our own truth and we're so desperate that we can't even see the obvious logical problems with that? Why don't more people go, well, but can I kill a toddler, for example? Right. Why don't we draw that out? I, I it, It's yeah. really baffling to me. So I'm curious from your perspective why you think that well, is. Well, yeah, it's baffling to me too because a perfect practical example of this would be the gay marriage issue. I remember, I remember looking at social media posts back before the decision to legalize gay marriage. And there were Christians saying, look, if we, you know, move the fence posts for this one, the next, you know, the next thing people are going to be talking about is polyamory. And I remember seeing many posts from gay marriage advocates saying, don't be ridiculous. That would never happen. People would never get on board with that. Well, here we are today with even just, I believe it was a couple months ago, one of, one of those late, not late night, but prime time uh, type of, it wasn't American Idol, but it's one of those, where a, a person came on and said, here's my family, and it was a group of men and women, and they said, well, who, who is this? And it was their, they were polyamorous relationship with all these people, and they got a standing ovation. So don't tell me that there's not a slippery slope on these kinds of things, right? I mean, we've seen this play out in the practical. So I don't know why more people aren't following these things to their logical conclusion. But I think ultimately it's because people define words in so many different ways. And so if you just look at the phrase, live your truth, the quote that you read um, that where I had quoted a popular writer, that's actually Glennon Doyle's quote. And that's what she said in regard to her decision to leave her husband and end up you know, pursuing this lesbian relationship with um, Abby Wambach. And so she's like, I'm living my truth. I want to see you live your truth. And so for her, the context was in your love life. You know, if you're not happy in your marriage, get out of that and follow your truth or what you might love. But other people, uh, I, I think in the, in the context that Oprah used this, it was really used to empower women to be truthful about abuse they'd endured. So it was like, hey, live your truth. You speak your truth. But even so, in both cases, if your tr- if what you believe is true is not rooted in what's objectively true in reality, it diminishes the power of that truth. So even take the example of the, the woman who wants to finally speak out about abuse that she's lived under. If you tell her that's just her truth, essentially what you're telling her, logically speaking, is that, well, that's just true for you. You know, you, you can say that and, you know, maybe people will believe you. Maybe we should or shouldn't believe you. But that's your truth. But really, how much more powerful to tell her, hey, it's time to speak the truth about what happened to you. That actually elevates the power of the claim she's making because she's making a claim about objective reality that's not just true for her. And so I think my hope is that 
not just Christians, but everybody would become better critical thinkers to think about the logical implications of some of these lies, because certainly there are biblical truths, there are spiritual realities underneath these things that we discuss in the book. But I really wanted to take each lie and kind of do a two level approach where the first level is just the logical level. Why do we all know that you can't just live your truth and someone live their truth? Well, you can, as long as your truths are in somewhat harmony with each other. But as you mentioned, Natasha, what if one person says, uh, my truth is that it's wrong to kill toddlers for fun. And the other person says, well, my truth says it's, a, it's okay. And it's a good you know, release of your aggression to kill toddlers for fun. Who decides between them? There has to be an objective re a reality, an objective standard outside of those two people by which to say, no, it actually is wrong to do that. And, uh, and I think that's one thing people often skip over is, you know, if we just assume when it comes to morality that the most amount of people that think something's right actually makes it right, then you can't condemn somebody like a Hitler. You can't condemn the uh, atheist regimes in the Soviet bloc because, you know, that, uh, most people in that area thought that at the time that that was good. And so there has to be a standard outside of ourselves. And that's not just for morality, but it, it applies to religion as well. I mean, God exists or he doesn't. That's not just true for one person and then maybe different for someone else. And that's the thing about Christianity that I, I hope to get people thinking about is that if Christianity is true, uh, because it makes historical claims by which you could prove it true or false, right? The resurrection of Jesus, Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith's in vain and you're still in your sin. So, but if it's true, if it actually is true, then it's true for everyone. And that means it has eternal consequences for everyone. So someone can believe it or not believe it. That doesn't change what's true about it. And so uh, hopefully we can get people thinking about these kinds of things because you can't, especially when it comes to religion and morality, you can't just live your truth because here's another problem, just a logical level problem. If, if everybody just lives their truth and there's no objective standard outside of us to decide what's actually true in reality, then it's really just the biggest and strongest people that get to decide what's true. And that has worked really badly in history. If, if anybody looks at a cursory look at world history, you'll see that has not worked out very well. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's why I love the subjects that you cover in your book, because there is so much bad thinking in culture. And it's not just in culture. It's also within the church. And I think that the subjects in this book make such good test cases for looking at it, because when you do draw out those kinds of things, I think it does become more obvious to people. It's just that people aren't really thinking about the things that they hear so much. So when you say live your truth and people are like, well, yeah, you should live your truth or you should be authentic. Another one that that you cover in the book, people think that sounds good. They're just not taking it to the natural conclusion. But when you spend just a little time, and, and for people listening, the book is a very easy read. This isn't, you know, a, a very big, huge philosophical treatise on, you know, all of these things. This is a very easy, direct read because Elise is showing in it that in just a few pages, you can show that this whole idea of live your truth doesn't play out if you just think about that a little bit further, just like she's explaining in this. And that's a great example, the answer that you just gave. And you can find that repeatedly throughout the book with all of these different issues. So I love that it becomes a test case for better critical thinking. And I think that the book will really help people to not just think more critically about these specific topics, but about everything that they hear.
One of the things uh, that somebody asked online when I said that there's going to be an episode coming out with you about this, uh, someone asked and it just kind of made me, I was going to do this at the end, but it made me think about it when you're talking. She said, under what circumstances should we respond to fellow believers who are spouting secular wisdom on social media? And what's a good approach if we do respond? And the reason that this particular question that we were just talking about made me think of that is that I always kind of resort to go to the logical part of it, because even if someone has a different worldview, a lot of times what we can do is help people go to the logical part first so they can think Mm -hmm. about what they're thinking. And then that goes to the worldview part. So I'm just curious how you would answer that in terms of the worldview versus the logic pieces. And when do you know how to approach someone? on social media. Yeah, that's a really great question. And I also appreciate you saying, Natasha, that it's an easy read because that was really my goal. My goal in writing this book was not to write an apologetics treatise on truth or to give a bunch of lists of things that are true and false. I mean, I really wanted this to be conversational. So even when we get into the biblical data, it's very conversational. It's just like the Bible talks about this, this way, and this, this way. Um, But yeah, so the question about how, you know, how to engage, so much of that is going to depend on a your relationship with this person like you know what what type of relationship do you have with this person how open do you think they are to a little bit of pushback or some questions and then you know i i think going to that logical level first might be a good introductory way to get into some of these things like for example um you know it you could even do it in a humorous way um, my daughter does this when we talk about, because we talk a lot about uh, the, the idea of identity in our culture and how culture is, you know, telling her to identify herself, who, who is her true authentic self, and then let that out and tell everybody. And she's, you know, begging to go to public school because she thinks she could totally game the system with the whole identity thing. You know, just identify as the teacher, mom. I'm going to identify as the teacher <laughs> and then let everybody go early. So, you know, it kind you can make kind of, you can do humorous approaches like that. Um, but I think, I think the main thing would be to A, arm yourself with knowledge of critical thinking. I think every Christian should pick up The Fallacy Detective. It's a, actually a, a book written for kids, but I think it's a really good basic introduction to logical fallacies. Maybe just start studying some logical fallacies so that you can spot them online. Because when people engage in logical fallacies, you can often demonstrate that with a good question or even like even a humorous question. So, for example, like if somebody were to say, um, I can do anything I set my mind to, you know, if you know the person well and there you have this kind of relationship, you could even just say, well, I, I, I set my mind to fly, you know, all by myself, just with the power of my mind. Should I go jump off a building? You know, and things like that, you know, obviously that's an exaggerated example, but just to get people thinking like, hey, maybe the logic of this is not rock solid. One thing I see all the time on social media are statements like this, where they'll say, love is more important than what you believe. Mm-hmm. And so if you're if you're studying logical fallacies, then you will have studied self-refuting statements. And that just means when you take the claim the statement is making and you apply it to itself, does it stand? And so when somebody says love is more important than what you believe, if you if you're kind of trained to spot these things, you'll notice that the statement love is more important than what you believe is a belief. And so if it's true that love's more important, then it's more important than that belief, which makes the statement false. And so you can kind of find 
fun ways to expose that. Like if somebody were to say that, you could say, is that belief more important than love or something like that, just to kind of get people thinking. So that might be one way. And then, you know, if it's somebody who is a otherwise a sincere Christian who might just be kind of, you know, tricked by some of these ideas and, you know, you might private message them and say, hey, I noticed you said this. Would you be open to talking more about this? Um, would you be open to reading this article I found or maybe reading this book together? And, you know, um, I have found that to be a really good way. So you're not directly confronting the person, but you're sending them a resource that they can kind of check out on their own. That's another way to possibly go about that. But again, so many of these depend on variables like your relationship to the person, where they're at spiritually, what they're open to hearing, how much conversation they're open to having and, and things like that. And ultimately, more than anything, pray. Yeah, that's that's such great advice. And and for anyone who's listening who's thinking, but why do we need to correct people? You know, why do we need to even think about, well, when should I say something? When should I not say something? I, I think there are a lot of people out there who probably think that. Um, what would you say to the person listening who's just thinking, why would we ever want to correct a fellow believer's thinking? Mm. Yeah, and I think just that question is indicative of where our culture is at. We have been absolutely trained to never oppose what somebody else believes or, or wants to behave like or wants to say. And the reason for that is because our culture has redefined the word love. It's, it's actually considered unloving to publicly disagree with somebody on certain things because there are certain things that you can cancel people over, that you can very openly oppose people for, obviously. So there's, there's a kind of a hypocritical standard in our culture. But we have really been trained that you're not supposed to oppose someone else's truth. And so I think that the number one thing um, for Christians who might even be listening to this to say is do a self-assessment. Like, have you bought into some of these ideas? Because if you're asking that question, you know, why don't we just live and let live? And of course, we want to be tolerant classically, meaning we want to respect other people's rights to disagree with something we're saying. And we disagree with them, but respect their right to say it. That's what tolerance means. But we don't want to cave to cultural ideas that would even try to suppress our voice. And so I think maybe even just a good bit of self-assessment might be in order. Like, why am I even asking that question? Is that something, if I bought into some cultural wisdom that goes against what the Bible says, because the Bible is very clear um, over and over and over again. In fact, one of the qualifications for elders is to be able to refute false doctrine. I mean, that's, that's a requirement for an elder of a church. Uh, as Christians, we are called to test every spirit. We are called to test the ideas, to hold fast to what is true. Paul praised the Bereans for searching the scriptures to make sure that what he was saying was true. Um, there's no biblical sense in which we should just, oh, you know, it's all right. Let, let them believe what they want to. I mean, Paul was constantly correcting people, calling them out by name. Um, and, and of course, I love all the verses that tell us to do this in a spirit of gentleness and uh, respect and, um, you know, doing what you can to live at peace with all people. But Part of loving people is speaking truth into situations where they might be being deceived because you care about them. You don't want them to be swept up in an idea that's going to be harmful to them or untrue in their lives and in their relationship with the Lord. 
Yeah, so true. And I think part of it, too, is that people think that these kinds of statements are rather innocuous. They think, oh, well, you know, I kind of know what she means or I, I know what he's saying here. And so we kind of wave them off, but we don't realize where that kind of thinking can lead you or even that it's kind of the tip of an iceberg a lot of times and how we think. And so that's how we get into the situations where we see the church where it is today, where people have all kinds of very secular ideas that mix in with their biblical understanding, with their biblical worldview. And so so when we help someone to think more clearly about what they're saying, when they, it does have a lot of worldview implications, we are absolutely loving them, like you're saying. I just did a, a new talk that I created on speaking truth boldly in a secular culture a couple of weeks ago at an event. And one of the things that I talked about was just the definition of speaking truth. What does that mean? Why does it matter? And when I was thinking about, well, how do I boil that down? It's exactly what you said, is speaking truth is part of how we love both God and others. Mm, and that was right. kind of like the simplest way that I could think of to frame it. I had the whole audience say that with me. Speaking truth is part of how we love both God and others. Mm. And that's not just, you know, when somebody says, hey, I don't believe in God. I think most people think, okay, that's an obvious one, an obvious opportunity that I can share the gospel with them and talk to them about my faith and, and hope that they are going to, you know, see the gospel for what it is. But a lot of people don't realize that these statements can also lead your heart away from the Lord. Because because if you really get caught up in these ideas where you're your own boss and it's all about being authentically mm -hmm. you and you are enough, the things that you talk about in your book, that is a matter of your relationship with the Lord and how you see who you are, how you see who he is, how you see your relationship. These are giant worldview issues. It's not just something cute you see on a coffee mug right. or on a pillow. So right. it's it, they are so important. So to the person who's wondering, well, do I really need to be concerned with these things? The answer is yes, yes, absolutely. And it's because you love God and you love others. That's why. That's right. I mean, even just think about that in a, in a context of a different type of relationship. Like, let's say um, someone starts spreading these rumors about your mother and you know they're not true. Would it be more loving to say... For, the, for both your mother and the person who's believing lies about her, what would be more loving? To just say, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna right. kind of step in and tell them they're wrong. Well, no, out of love and probably with great vigor and passion, you would say, no, 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 that, that's not true about her and here's why. And then that way you're showing love to your mom and to the other person. And so maybe sometimes just stepping out of the context of it being a spiritual thing can help people yeah. kind of wrap their heads around that. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great example. Another topic that I really loved in the book is the whole idea that you are enough, which I mentioned a minute ago. And you say that we've been conditioned to think that if we just love ourselves more, everything is going to get better. And you point out that this is because you are enough is based on the assumption that people are basically good. This is such a good and insightful point. I was highlighting this. I was starring it. I love the connection that you're making there because as you say in the book, if that's true, if we are fundamentally good, which by the way is the opposite of what the Bible says, that we are that's not right. fundamentally good, that we are fundamentally bad, that we have this sin nature. But if we start believing the opposite, that we're fundamentally good, all we have to do to make things better in our lives is just dig a little deeper. If we just mm -hmm. get down to that negative of authenticity or that nugget of goodness way down deep, then we're going to bring out so much more. It's kind of like a hidden treasure within us. 
And I agree with you so much on this. I hear this all the time and it's kind of like all the errors of the world, or not all, but yeah. almost all of them, it seems, would go away if people realize, no, we're not fundamentally good. It has such an impact yeah. on how we see everything. So I, maybe you can unpack that a little bit and talk about some of the errors in thinking that come from believing that we are fundamentally good as people. And Christians get yeah. this wrong too. I think you actually had a statistic, oh, yeah. I didn't write it down, but I think it was like over 80% of people in America think that people yeah. are fundamentally good. Yeah. <laughs> this is pervasive yeah. and it leads to all these errors. So help us understand what some of those errors are when we think that we are so good as people. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that virtually all the lies in this book, you are enough, live your truth, put yourself first, authenticity is everything. God just wants you to be happy. You shouldn't judge. You are the boss of you. I mean, think about all of these lies are essentially built upon this foundation or this assumption that humans are inherently good. Because if you, you know, if you really put yourself in that mindset, if you truly believe that humans are inherently good and that whatever, I mean, everybody can look out and see there's something wrong, right? Everybody can see that humans haven't always treated each other well, that there's been horrible things done from humans to other humans. So I think everybody recognizes that. But if you think that the fix to that problem would be to just realize your inner goodness, right? And that's kind of what all these lies are built upon is just this idea that, hey, you've got to reclaim that inner goodness that's in you. You need to refine that. Everything that's wrong with you, everything that's wrong with the world, it's like the world culture would say we're being corrupted from the outside in. Whereas the Bible teaches that we are corrupted from the inside out. So it's not systems that corrupt people. It's people that corrupt systems. Yeah. That might sound like a small thing, but it's a massive paradigm shift, even in the way people see uh, things like justice and all of this stuff. And so I think all of these lies are built on this idea that people are basically good. And a lot of people in the more progressive Christian type arenas would even go to Genesis for that. You know, God created uh, humans. He called them good. And then they stop there, but we ha we can't stop there. Yes, that's a beautiful truth that all humans have been created in the image and likeness of God. And that's why we know things like murder and abortion and racism are wrong because inherent, uh, humans have inherent dignity and value and worth because of that image of God. But there's a big but that a lot of people skip over and that's Genesis 3 where we have the fall. This is when Adam and Eve rebel against God. And from Romans, we know that this ushered sin and death into the world and through Adam, sin and death spread to all men. And then the Bible talks about our nature being that we are by nature children of wrath. It says this in Ephesians. And so we have to understand that the way that Bible talks about the human heart, it's deceitful and wicked. Insanity is in our hearts from our youth. It talks about, um, even Jesus talked about all manner of immorality flowing out of the heart of man. The Bible continually talks about the heart of people, the heart of humans as being fallen, as being broken. It's not that the image of God is lost, but it's distorted by sin. And so, but, so this is two different worldviews. If you think in, humans are inherently good, then the answer would be to just reaffirm yourself you are enough, you know, dig down inside yourself and find that power, find that goodness, or as Glennon Doyle puts it, find the liquid gold or that sense of knowing that's innately there because it's never gonna lead you wrong. It's never gonna tell you a lie. It's always gonna lead you to right things. I mean, I, I could get on board with that if humans were inherently good. Yeah. But biblically, we know that if you dig down inside yourself, you're not gonna find liquid gold in there. You're not gonna find this internally, uh, you know, uh, 
always correct sense of morality or, or directional sense of what you should and shouldn't do. You're not going to find that. You're going to find a sinner that's deeply in need of a savior. And so I think that, um, you know, honestly, sometimes I've thought about this so much, even since I wrote the book, I almost wondered if if I should have done a whole chapter just on, uh, you know, the inherent sinfulness of man. I did go into it quite deeply in the You Are Enough chapter, but really all these lies are built on that. Is that is just this idea that you just need to find, you need to dig down inside yourself and whatever yeah. you find in there is what you need to identify and then unleash on the world and live your truth, identify yourself, live your true authentic self. And so um, it, it's just really built on a false premise. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and, and I, I know from our conversations, you probably agree with me about this, but I think that so much of this starts with the way that we teach kids in Sunday school. Going back yeah. to those earliest years in Sunday school, how often do those lessons just revolve solely around how much God loves us? And we want mm -hmm. kids to know that God loves us, right? right? But there's another part of that picture. That's the part of who God is, but it's a very singular focus. God is many other things. He is absolutely love. He defines what love is, as we've been talking about, but he's also holy. He's also just. Mm -hmm. He's also omniscient and omnipotent. He, he is so many more things, but kids don't hear about all those attributes because we have such watered down kinds of church programs for kids where we think all they mm -hmm. need to know is how much God loves them. Well, we don't just need to teach kids about how much God loves them. They need to know that 100%. So no one listening should take away that I right. don't think that. But we also need to know who we are. That who we are as image bearers of God, that's a huge part of that. Why that gives us an objective basis for believing that all human beings are equal by their very nature. It gives us a basis for justice in terms of how we see one another and how we treat one another, but also we are sinners. We are sinners. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people, their skin would crawl to just think of teaching young kids, and we've seen this in progressive articles that have been written that we talk about, but a lot of people would think, oh, you're gonna tell little kids that they're sinners? Yes, yes, <laughs> that is who we are as human beings. And I think that we have to be able to say that. Otherwise, what kids hear for years and years is just how much God loves them and you're so great and you are a friend of God. I remember when my kids were little, mm -hmm. you know, singing that song. I, I'm not gonna try to sing because that would just be embarrassing, especially <laughs> with my guest today, Elisa Childers. <laughs> but the song is all about you are a friend of God. We are friends of God, right? Well, I've been studying John 15 right now and it's, you know, he's Jesus is talking about Yes, you are my friends if you do what I command. If. Right. <laughs> if you There's do what I there. command. This is not a buddy-buddy kind of friendship, right? So it, it's interesting to me that we skip right over that part. Mm -hmm. We are friends with God if we do what he commands. There's a whole other level of, of things going on here. And so we don't teach that part. We teach our kids that God is love and that we are friends of God, but we don't teach the other part of it. So I think it's really easy for kids to grow up in a church environment and think that we are fundamentally good. Yeah. And that leads yeah. to all these errors in thinking. So I don't know if you have, I'm just kind of throwing that out, yeah, but well, I don't know no, if you I have thoughts really about good. that. No, I think it's really good because what we also do when we do that is we rob them of the opportunity to really be able to do something meaningful with their guilt because kids know that they've done wrong. They know that, that they're, you know, when they lie, when they cheat, when they put themselves first, when they're selfish, innately they know that they're doing those things. But if we, if all we tell them is, oh, God loves you because you're just so adorable, we have to, we have to balance that message with God loves you in spite of these things and actually gives you a mechanism 
yeah. for atonement for these things. You can actually, like, I, I love to talk about my kids, uh, to talk about repentance with my kids. And I even, oh, listen, I, I'm influenced by my culture too. I find myself sort of even wanting to skip over that part. Like if, if one of my kids sins against their brother or sister, I, I get it. Like my instinct is to say, oh, you're perfect just as you are. You know, don't don't worry about it. It's fine. It'll all be fine. Like that's kind of what I want to do. But really, if I do that without teaching them what true repentance is, then I'm robbing them of the opportunity to really get rid of their guilt. Because really then that guilt's just going to get shoved down because it hasn't been confessed. It hasn't been repented of. And that's why repentance is such a gift. It, the Bible says it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. When we repent, we turn from that sin and, and ask for forgiveness and turn away from it. Um, then, then we are actually cleansed of the guilt as well. Like that guilt goes away. And that's what I try to communicate with my kids too, is like, yeah, um, there's forgiveness and, and the love is never in question. We love you no matter what you do, but, but we also want to give you the gift of repentance here. And yes, you did sin against your brother or sister. And that's why you need to go repent to them and you need to repent to the Lord. And then that frees them. I think, you know, we want to talk about freedom. You're giving them the opportunity to really manage, you know, to do something with that guilt that is just going to get shoved down if you just tell them how nice and beautiful and cute they are. Yeah, absolutely. So everyone go home and tell your kids they're huge centers tonight. That's the homework, right? Repent. <laughs> repent. You, repent. Repent. Centers in the hands of an angry God. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think we've talked about so many great topics, but I think my absolute favorite chapter in the book is the one on authenticity, because this is something we hear all the time, that you just have to be your authentic self. And you do a great job of breaking down the different definitions of authenticity, because like we've been talking about, people can mean lots of different things when they say that. And sometimes that's that's a good word to use in the context, but a lot of times it's not. So I love when you say, for example, that quote, authenticity begins with a death, specifically mm -hmm. a death to self and reorientation toward living for Christ. So can you help us understand what a biblical view of authenticity is and how the popular view fails? Why do we need a death? Yeah, well, you know, so so in reality, at least that I have found, there's not like this concept in the Bible of here's how to live authentically. Like you don't find teachings with that word, at least translated in English that way. And so really what the main, you know, our culture has made authenticity like it's the main point of life. And so, yeah. you know, properly defined in English, authenticity means it's like a sense of being genuine. It's, a, it's a, you know, not being fake. Um, and so there's a sense in which I think Christians need to be authentic, right? We need to be real with each other. We need to confess our sins to each other, walk in that kind of authenticity with each other. We don't want to be, you know, big fakers when we get to church and be like, oh, I'm just living my most victorious life. If you really, if you're going through a hard time, we should be able to talk to each other about those things and pray for each other. Um, so in that sense, I think that's really good. But our culture doesn't mean that when it's talking about authenticity. When our culture talks about authenticity, again, it's built on that idea that what you find inside of yourself is going to be inherently good. And so it, it has to do with desire. So if you think about this concept of our desires, right, we don't always desire the things that are right. And I think everybody can recognize that. 
Um, but the culture's answer to that is to change what you think is right or wrong. And then I did let the desires become your true authentic self, right? So you just live that desire out. Whereas the Bible would say, no, actually, when your desires are in conflict with what's right and wrong, you need to bring your desires under submission to the word of God, and they need to be reformed. Your desires actually need to be changed and transformed. You need to be renewed um, in your mind and be conformed into the image of Christ every day. That's why, really, if you think about the main point of the Christian life in the Bible, it's holiness, not authenticity. Like true authenticity would actually be to be living a life that pursues holiness. In other words, sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ every single day. And so um, authenticity, you know, if if we really want to live as authentic Christians, the Bible talks about us dying to ourselves. Like Jesus didn't say, pick up your cross and find yourself. He said, you know, or he didn't say, uh, find yourself and follow me. He said, deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me. And so uh, to be an authentic Christian, to live authentically in that identity is to live a life of repentance, a life that's lived in God's word. Uh, Jesus prayed in John 17, uh, sanctify them according to your truth. Your word is truth. And, And Jesus' prayer for his followers would be that we would become more and more like him, sanctified by God's word. And so I think it's like with a topic like this, Christians, we really have to get off the culture hamster wheel on this. Like we just have to get off of that and realize that what, how we live, what we go to as our authority, our point, the whole point of our lives is going to be different than everything we see on Netflix and all of this stuff that's marketed to us. And we just have to get comfortable with that, right? It's, it's a death to self. It's a reorientation toward living for Christ. It's a completely different identity. It's a completely different, we're, we're citizens of a different kingdom. Uh, and, and so I think that Christians have got to get off this culture authenticity train because it's really devastating to people's lives. I mean, think about just in a practical example. I uh, I, I know a story of a family where uh, one of the spouses read Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, and decided that he had not been living his most authentic self in the area of his marriage because he just wasn't happy in the marriage. And he just, you know, kind of decided he wasn't attracted to women anyway. And so he left his family, his kids, everything, and is and, and, and said, basically, that's the only area in my life where I wasn't living authentically. And so really, he had bought into the idea of culture that his desires is his most true authentic self, which is going to be inherently good. So that needs to be lived out fully in order to be authentic. Well, this has left devastation in its wake. I mean, his, the, the impact it had on his family, his wife, his kids, it's just been devastating. Um, and, and so I, I think that we have to be really careful with some of these cultural ideas, even as good as they sound. We can end up hurting a lot of people around us and it being spiritually devastating in our own lives. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you just told a story about a guy that kind of bought that lie, because one of the things that I was pondering as I was reading the book is that it seems to me, even though the book is clearly written for anyone, it's not just written for women. A lot of the lies that you talk about, and especially authenticity, it stands out to me, is real. They're really pervasive in women's circles, especially, you know, so some of them you would see more men talking about, but some of them do seem like women especially fall prey to these things. I'm I'm curious if if you agree with that, and if so, why do you think it is that this is especially within the women's yeah. realm? 
It's funny, I get asked this a lot. Like, is this something that is more pervasive in women's circles? And to be honest with you, I don't know. I actually think men buy these uh, lies probably in equal measure, but they just maybe manifest differently. So mm -hmm. if you th even think about authenticity, you know, the need to be authentic, I think men do buy into that. Like, even just look at, um, in, in particular, intersectionality, you know, intersections of oppression as the, as the world would talk about it how even with, you know, like maybe gay men in a particular uh, environment are, you know, encouraged to live authentically in that identity or uh, other, other, you know, men who might be just giving into a life of laziness of video games and living in their mom's basement. It's like, well, this is my, they may not word it that way, that this is my true authentic yeah. self, but they're buying the same lie because they're saying, you know, I don't, I don't need to get up and get a job because this is who I am. This is what makes me happy. This is what my desires are saying. So I do think that it's kind of a human problem that would manifest in, in different ways for men or women. Um, but, but I do think that women maybe fall for some of the, um, I don't know. I, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn here because I'd have to think about it more. Um, I do think there's a sense in which because women are hardwired to be mothers, I mean, our bodies, we are hardwired to be mothers, which I think gives us an innate, um, sort of emotional IQ. Now, of course, there's always exceptions to this, but generally speaking, I think women are more in tune with the individual emotions of individual people, maybe more than men are. I think men are more oriented towards groups and both are strengths, but because of women's particular hardwiring for that emotional intelligence that makes us mothers and more nurturing in certain ways, um, you know, might make us more deceivable in certain areas, but I think men are more deceivable in other areas. So, uh, all of these lies though, even the ones that men buy into equally uh, that women do, it's all based on these ideas of like, God just wants me to be happy. I think that's a huge one that men buy into, um, possibly even more than women. Cause I think maybe, uh, you know, I may be speaking out of turn. I don't have data for this, but if you look, it's usually the woman that's doing self-sacrificial work in the home. Even the woman that's out, got a full-time job, she's probably still the one gonna do the dishes unless she makes the guy do it, right? So I think men buy into this idea, like I'm just gonna, you know, it's it's kind of more self-centered thing, like I wanna be happy. So I think lies can manifest in different ways between men and women. And, um, you know, again, I don't have data for any of that. It's just observational and anecdotal, but uh, it just seems to be, it's a human problem, but yeah, certainly manifesting in different ways. That's a great distinction. I, I haven't thought about it that way, but you're right. Some of the terminology, I guess, you would hear more from women, you know, telling each other that you are enough. Yeah. Like, you don't, yeah, you're I not can't imagine, see like, guys. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, hey, you're bro, enough, you are you know, enough, like, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> be like, your you're going to go to the baseball game. You're up for bat. You are enough. You know, just, you're enough. You're good. You're not going to probably see a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, so you're right. It's, it's kind of a language thing, the way that we speak about it. But I love that distinction that, you know, it, it is a human problem to believe these lies because they are based on these things, these ways of thinking, like we're talking about in yeah. terms of this being about humans being fundamentally good and the worldview issues that underlie them, they just manifest themselves differently, maybe in terms of right. the language. So I, I love that. That's really interesting. And I think well, also- and, and Let me just add something yeah. super quick because as I'm thinking about it, and even the baseball analogy, you know, the guy that's going up to bat, bases loaded, two outs, last inning, you know, his teammates probably aren't going to be like, you're enough, but they're going to say, you got this. You got <laughs> That's it. True. You can do this all on your own. So they're saying the same thing, but it's just worded differently. <laughs> yeah, that that is a really good point. And I think that to some degree, uh, you know, women's ministries 
kind of facilitate this kind of thinking also, and maybe more so than men's ministries, um, depending on the church and what you see. But in my experience, at least, and you know, like you've been saying, like, I don't have data on this, but in my experience, from what I've observed and speaking at churches and talking to people at conferences and seeing what people are doing in their various church environments, women's ministries tend to bring women together who are talking about these things and kind of, it's almost like more of a support group. You know, it Mm. turns into, we are here to support one another and support support a lot Mm. of times in our worldly definition becomes something more akin to, hey, you got this and you are enough. And it's it's kind of a secular encouragement almost. Mm -hmm. So rather Mm -hmm. than getting together to do a deep Bible study, women will get together a lot of times and just talk about things, talk about their lives. And that's part of fellowship. I'm not saying, you know, we shouldn't be doing those things. But when it gets down to it, a lot of times women's ministries, rather than encouraging deep study of the Bible, are encouraging a supportive type of environment where that becomes the primary focus. We're going to support one another in this walk. And Mm. we all need encouragement and support. Absolutely. But if it's not rooted in an objective basis of God's word and how we should be living and how we should love and how we should support, if it's not rooted in that, then it's really just a social club. I actually posted something on social media about that this week in terms of when you look for a church, don't just look for a good community. However, you might define that. Look first and foremost for the doctrine. What are they teaching? What do they believe? So it just seems like a lot of times in women's ministry, it takes on that kind of focus. Whereas in men's ministry, it's not to say that they're always digging deep into the word either, but I don't see as much of the, hey, let's get together and just pat each other on the back. Do you, have you experienced that? Do you have any thoughts about how you've seen that play out in churches also? Well, one thing I was just thinking about as you were talking, as far as women's ministries go, and I'm certainly no expert on women's ministry. And, you know, I want to make a disclaimer that I'm not, you know, here to bash women's ministries or there's so many great ones out there. I've visited churches where the women are doing Jay Werner Wallace's cold case Christianity and, you know, they're they're doing the deep the deep studies. And I think that's great. Um, But I do wonder, you know, if when it comes to women's ministry, if it does attract a certain type of woman, because I've met a lot of women who are just like, oh, I don't go to women's ministry because it's too fluffy or it's this. And so I wonder if it's almost like um, the problem gets perpetuated. It's like maybe there could even be somebody who comes in and wants to do better. But um, so they just give a little bit of meat, but it's not enough to attract people who want the real meat so that the, the people who want the fluff or the community or whatever, they're coming. And then it's it, it's sort of like and then the people who don't want that stay away. So it perpetuates the problem. And yeah. so then they want to give more of what, you know, it's kind of consumer driven, possibly in certain places to try to you know grow the group or whatever. And the fluffy stuff is always going to grow a group for a while, at least. But it's going to isolate people who want, you know, real teaching. And honestly, I, I've always just struggled with the idea of women's ministry, though, to be honest with you. I've never really understood why there needs to be something different for women that is like its own thing. I, I mean, I certainly understand women getting together uh, on for certain things, but just an entire women's ministry where there's like Bible teaching that's just for women. Like, why is that? Why is there only why? Why are we doing that? Like, why don't we just study the Bible? Um, because it's applicable to everybody. I don't I've never really understood that. So maybe I just I need maybe I need enlightenment in that area because I don't really get it. <laughs> Well, that's true because a lot of times, you know, if you do have a mixed group, it's always in the context of, you know, couples coming together, which kind of leaves out anyone who's single who is not going to join a mixed kind of group. And so then you lose out on the perspectives that everyone brings together. So it is, it's interesting. And, you know, I don't want to go too far far off course on the women's ministry thing, but I I do think that there is something to that in, in that 
women's ministries tend to bring women together for support. And it's even billed that way. <laughs> it's, you know, yeah. come together yeah. for support and encouragement. And maybe we shouldn't be leading with that so much, depending on how we are um, defining those things. And again, yeah. that's not to say we don't need encouragement support. I need a whole lot of encouragement and support yes. in my life. I, yes. I get it. Absolutely. We're just talking about the priorities of those things. You know, three of the female influencers that you quote repeatedly in the book as promoting problematic ideas are probably very familiar names to a lot of people. Uh, Jen Hatmaker, Glennon Doyle, and Rachel Hollis. They all have wildly popular books. We're talking about New York Times bestsellers. Mm -hmm. These are not just one-off kinds of quotes that you found on the internet to say, hey, look, here's an example. I mean, these are these books are selling millions of copies, and they're popular even with Christian women. But I've seen a lot of Christian women defend those books when you go to point out the problems with them, as you have in some very popular blog posts that you've written. They, they, they defend them by saying that they take the quote unquote inspirational content and they set aside whatever they don't agree with. So in other words, you know, well, you know, yeah, I don't agree with everything, but I'm going to take this part over here. But I think that the content that they're probably thinking of as the good stuff, the inspirational stuff, is actually problematic to begin with, and they don't even realize it. Yeah. So it, it's concerning to me when I hear people try to defend the books in that way, because it's not so easy to just slice off the bad stuff from the good stuff, because a lot of times mm -hmm. people don't realize what exactly the bad stuff is. So what would you say to women who maybe are listening to this thinking, yeah, but I really enjoyed that Jen Hatmaker book. She's so funny. And mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's definitely some truth in there. Yeah, I don't agree with everything. But do we really have to toss out these books? What would you say to somebody who's thinking that right now? Well, I would, I, I would like to ask them a question. And my question would be, is how much time are you spending reading the Bible every day? And the reason I would ask that question is because, especially with Glennon Doyle's Untamed and uh, Jen Hatmaker's more recent stuff, if you're spending any significant time in the Bible every day, you wouldn't be able to stomach these books. Hmm. Um, and, and yeah, it's true. There's some wisdom to be gleaned. They're, they say true things sometimes, certainly. I'm not at all saying that uh, there's not some helpful advice that you might find hidden in one of these books. But you can get that from anything that they're going to say. In fact, I'll take Jen Hatmaker for an example. I read her book, Fierce, Free, and Full of Fire. I reviewed it on my podcast if anyone wants to uh, go back and look at that. And I also reviewed it on, for the Gospel Coalition. But, you know, you read her whole book, and she's basically tearing down and just bashing the church. The whole book is like just how Christians are the literal worst. The church is the worst. It's white supremacist. It doesn't care about the poor people. Everything's terrible about the church. And, uh, you know, you need to live your dream and you're beautiful just as you are. Everything's great. And then she d then she gives you a litany of things you have to do. You have to read these studies, join these Facebook groups, do the work here, do the work there. There's so much work, 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 work. Then she has this whole chapter on honesty. And I'm reading it going, oh, my goodness, you, you don't have to do all that other work. You can just read your Bible to get to know that you you should be honest and tell the truth. I mean, my goodness, you it's like you can go from point A to point B like this easy if you just read the Bible, or you can do this and come all the way around. I, I'm, I yeah. realize that people are only listening on audio. With my fingers, I'm doing a big circle <laughs> to get from point A to point B. And, and it's like, and you do so much, you have to work so hard to get there. And so, I mean, here's, here's the point I would make about that. Yeah, I'm certainly not going to deny that there are true things that are said in these books, all three of them. Um, but they're written from a completely different worldview. 
And the way that they, I mean, and the truths that are true are not worth reading all the other stuff to get to. Like, Glenn Doyle has a section on cream cheese. It's hilarious. It's great. She's talking about how soccer moms, you know, she was the, the, the soccer mom that had to bring the snacks one week. And they said, well, make sure you bring at least seven choices for cream cheese or whatever. And she's like, no, that's ridiculous. We're not doing that. They can have plain <laughs> cream cheese and they will not die. And I'm like, I totally, like, that was an awesome chapter. I loved that. But, like, did I need that? Did I need Glennon Doyle to tell me that it's decadent and stupid to entitle kids with seven kinds of cream cheese? No, I don't need that. You know, I can live without that. And so I guess the question, I would really want to know how much time they're spending in the Bible because it would be very hard to read a Glennon Doyle or Jen Hatmaker or Rachel Hollis book for pleasure if you are spending significant time in the Bible. It was incredibly difficult for me to get through these books just to review them. So, um, yeah, I think that would be the main question I would ask. That's a really convicting question. I love that question because it's it's true. If to a certain degree, I mean, you know, books are all over the spectrum in terms of how much is wrong with them. But if you have these books that are written from just this wildly different perspective like you're talking about, if you really are rooted in the Bible as God's word, it's going to continually ping at you. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. going to continually it's, it's put a yeah. knot in your stomach that wait, that's that's not true for Christ followers. Oh, well, this is true for Christ followers. And at some point you say, I can get the humor somewhere else. I don't, I don't need to yes. take in these lies. I don't need to get confused with a secular way of thinking, even though, yes, uh, you know, at least Jen Hatmaker used to be associated with being a solid Christian writer. I mean, lots of yeah. people used to look to her. Her books were everywhere in Lifeway. And, you know, so there's, I think there's just a lot of confusion. Well, you know, she's a Christian too, people would say. But, yeah. you know, like, like I talk about in Faithfully Different, 65% of people today in America say that they're Christian. That's the label they applied themselves. But research also shows that only 6% have a biblical worldview. And mm -hmm. that meaning that they adhere to the core truths as taught in the Bible. And so when we remember that, that tells us, okay, that big gap between the 65% and the 6% is going to show you that a lot of things that you see from quote unquote Christian people are not going to actually line up with the Bible. And if you're reading a book that continually differs from the Bible, like what you're describing, then I think it's time to say, is this really an important part of my life? I could be using that time to read a different book that actually mm -hmm. teaches things that are in line with God's word, and that can be spiritually beneficial to me and to other people. Or go read just a pure fiction book if you're just looking for entertainment that doesn't continually yeah. feed you lies, right? There's so many well, alternatives. And, and I would add this too. I'd be very careful with what you think is inspirational because yes. I'll, I'll even take, now I'm gonna, people are gonna think I'm just like an old goody two shoes, waving my lace doily, kids get off my lawn kind of situation here, but I'm just gonna say this. So. Jen Hatmaker went viral a few years ago with a post. It was hilarious. This post about end of the year moms. I mean, I think it even landed her a spot on the Today Show. It was kind of like what really first broke her into the mainstream, you know, I, you know, news and all of that stuff. And it was hilarious. She writes this whole post about it's like the last week of school, and that's always when they want you to come up with the costume for your kid, and you got to do all these things and have the snacks and then this and then that. And it's like you're barely getting out of bed by the end of May, right? You know. So all these moms, myself included, related with that. Like that's really funny. But the more I thought about that, the whole message of that was just basically like, yeah, it's okay to just throw in the towel and be lazy at the end of the year. I mean, that was really, so, so what you find, yeah, it was funny. I laughed. It, I related with it. But I was actually also convicted because I'm like, ooh, I don't want to cave into this idea of just like finish with your hands up, whatever. 
I don't even care anymore, and that's okay, because a lot of times what this inspirational content, quote unquote, does is make you feel better about your sin or your weaknesses or your shortcomings, gives you excuses to say, oh, I'm not the only one, so I'm just going to, you know, crack open a bottle of wine and go with it. You know, it's like... Let's think, let's, let's hold ourselves to higher standards. I get it. I get, you know, running out of lunch ideas by the end of the year and all that, but that's not an excuse to just become that. And that is often the sad thing that people do find inspiring about that is like, oh, okay, it's okay then for me to sort of just become lazy at the end of the year. And while we can giggle, that is funny. We all face that, but like, let's finish strong. Let's, let's get up and, and finish and teach our kids that. Let's brush our hair. There's my lace doily. There's my, (laughs) yes, let's brush our hair. Um, That's my lace doily soapbox sermon for everybody today. Yeah. And the, the definition of inspiration, I mean, that you're, you're so right about that because I'm just, I'm, as you're talking about this, I'm just thinking like we can actually feel inspired by something because that's based on our own aspirations. But those aspirations, if we don't have them rightly in place to line up with what the Bible says we should aspire to, then we're going totally off course. And so a lot of people, if we're starting from those wrong aspirations and you go to read a book like that and you're like, Oh, I'll just throw out the bad. But if your aspirations aren't in line with what the Bible's talking, about, you may come away from these books feeling inspired. And you might think, well, that means that it's okay. That means that I really did get something out of this. But I think we have to remember that your feelings are not your ultimate guide. Like I talk about in Faithfully Different, that your feelings may lead you astray. And the Bible says that there's a very good chance that will happen because our hearts are deceitful. And so if we're feeling inspired, it doesn't necessarily validate the book. It doesn't validate everything that you just read just because you feel inspired. You can feel inspired for very wrong reasons to go and do very wrong things. So inspiration certainly is not the goal. You know, someone's listening is absolutely bound to be thinking this, Lisa, and you and I both know it because we hear it all the time from our online platforms. What do you say to the person who is sitting here thinking right now, why are they, why are they talking about people by name? Why are they calling out a gin hat maker? Why are they, you know, talking publicly about all these, these people who are writing these books? Shouldn't they go personally to talk to them about that? Isn't that the biblical way? You know, we are being judgmental and we are not seeking unity. We hear those things all the time. So all the time. For all of eternity, can you please answer the question, are we being judgmental and are we not pursuing unity in the way that Jesus prayed? And I'm going to take your answer here and I'm just going to have a link to it so that I can continually plug it in every time I hear the comment because you hear it all the time and there's genuine confusion and it it does, to be fair, it comes from a a good heart. It comes from a good place that a lot of times people are just saying like, hey, let's not name people. Jesus wants us to all be unified you know, let's, let's not do that. So what do you say? Okay. So yeah, this is like, this is something that happens all the time. In fact, if anybody wants a picture of what this looks like, go to my post on my website, elisachilders.com, where I reviewed Girl, Wash Your Face by Rachel Hollis. Just go down into the comments and people will come in there and say, why didn't you go to her personally before you kind of blasted her ideas publicly? And then you'll see me kind of respond and say, interesting that you didn't approach me personally before publicly coming into my comments and calling me out for calling her out. So, you know, obviously that exposes the logical fallacy there. There's a hypocritical 
thing. Um, but the Bible doesn't require me to go personally to another author. Um, first of all, I doubt I could get a meeting. Okay, guys, <laughs> like I doubt <laughs> they're going to hop on the phone and like, oh, I'd love to hear Elisa Childers' criticism <laughs> of my book. Thank you so much for you know, calling me and letting me know you disagree with me. No, uh, here's the deal. They're putting public ideas into the public square. Millions of books being sold with their messaging. If I, uh, first of all, I wouldn't be able to probably get through to one of them. Maybe at this point I could get a debate or something on schedule publicly or something, but they're not going to take my call. Okay. Especially back then when I was, I didn't, nobody knew who I was. I, you know, they're not going to take some random call from a blogger who has concerns about their book. So like, let's put that aside. They're putting their ideas out for millions of people to purchase and consume. That requires an equal response. So if, let's say, the context was somebody like a Rachel Hollis is in a small group and she says something unbiblical in the small group and somebody decides to pull her aside and say, hey, I noticed you said this. Let's talk about this. Okay, that would be the appropriate response because it's in a one-on-one -on -one situation. But, and that would be an equal uh, response. But when somebody is selling books to millions of people with these ideas in it, I'm not trying to change Rachel Hollis's mind. I'm not trying to change Glennon Doyle and Jen Hatmaker's mind. I'm trying to change, counter the lies they're putting in by changing the minds of the people who are buying into their lies. And so that requires an equal and opposite response and reaction. So. They they put out their stuff publicly. I respond publicly. The same goes. It goes both ways. I've received a lot of criticism to my first book, and that's fair game. I put that out publicly so people have every right to respond publicly, and then the public can decide, you know, is are these claims true or are these claims true? What's true about this? And you can decide for yourself. Um, and that's how it works, right? So the Matthews, I think it's Matthew 17, the context of that is not somebody writing public books you know, and then you responding to that error. That it's just, it's just, it's just not a, it doesn't even work. Yeah, absolutely. And when it comes to the whole unity thing, you know, I, I, I always tell people, you know, can you find a place in the Bible that says unity means we're going to take all ideas as pretty much okay and get around right. in a circle and say, here we all are, we are unified as Jesus called us to. This, this is not a biblical idea. Every time that the Bible actually talks about unity, and you can see this throughout the New Testament, it's talking about bringing those in error into to truth so that That's you can right. be unified around true belief, That's right. around true doctrine, true ideas, the true beliefs about Jesus. So yeah, there's one faith that we're unified around. And even in Romans 16, 17, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So notice yeah. that Paul is actually saying it's the false teachers who are being divisive, right? not the believers who are calling out their false doctrines. Yeah, it, exactly. And you can see this throughout the pastoral epistles, especially it's talking about holding to sound doctrine. And I think that a lot of times people just pull out one or two verses and they say, you know, oh, well, Jesus prayed for unity. This was so important to That's Jesus, right. unity, unity. And it's like, yes, unity is important, but unified around truth, not a right. false kind of unity of bringing in all kinds of ideas. Instead, we are called throughout the Bible, in the New Testament, to look at the errors in thinking and to, in truth, speak truth so that we can 
love people by bringing them into a correct belief. So yes, this is a really important thing that we hear all the time from people. It's important for everyone to understand that. And the same thing with being judgmental. I mean, that word, again, we are called to be judgmental when by judgmental, we mean discern between what's right and wrong. These kind of concepts go hand in hand. So on a very final note, just for parents who might be listening who have teens, I was when I was reading the book, I was especially thinking about teen girls who hear this kind of language all the time in their circles and you know the kinds of lies that you're talking about the book. And it's so accessible as a read that I think that parents with teen girls, you don't even need a separate book, you know, geared toward teens or anything like that. It's just yeah. perfect to read together with them. And I highly would recommend that to parents who are listening. Can you help parents understand the value of this book in terms of what happens when teen girls believe the kinds of lies that you discuss? How do these lies affect their faith and their overall worldview, especially at this age and with the peer influences that they have? Well, actually, Natasha, you are the one who's got me thinking more about that. Um, in fact, you know, after you read the book, you texted me that this would be so good for teen girls, which has caused us to really think practically about putting together a curriculum mm -hmm. for um, maybe girls anywhere from 15 to 25 around this content. So thank you for that, because I hadn't really thought that through all the way. Um, but yeah, I think that this is so massively important for teens because, you know, their frontal lobes aren't even fully developed yet. So it, it, it's kind of like whatever is the shiny carrot. Um, we have a tendency as teenagers and as young people to kind of go after whatever feels right to us inside. And I think just demonstrating to young people and, you know, I mean, I have kids who are 14 and 11. So this is something I even observe among their friend group and their age group is that there's even if they might have really deep beliefs about something. They're really conditioned to not um, show any disagreement with each other. But if one person has something that somebody else might disagree with, they're kind of trained to affirm that, right? To just affirm what the person is saying because that's their truth, that's what they think. And so I think um, this is so key for young people because they really do need to understand that Christianity isn't like your favorite flavor of ice cream. You know, where you might say you like you think chocolate is the best and you think Rocky Road is the best. Um, it, it doesn't work that way. And so even just helping our teens to understand that Christianity is more like math. You know, two plus two equals four. That's what reality is. And Christianity is true as much as two plus two equals four. And so however you might approach two plus two equals four is how you need to approach the question of God and Christianity. And is that true? Like you would math. And, um, I think that there, there is such a push. Of course, there's the agenda even, and I'm sorry, not to open a whole big can here, but the whole radical gender theory and the trans ideologies that are, uh, grooming our kids to think that they need to just go inside themselves and find out what their desires are and then sanctify those desires and live them out. I think that would be the number one thing we have to help our kids understand that they don't decide those things. Like you don't even decide what you are or who you are. That's decided for you by your creator, by the person who designed you. And um, just even zooming out for the big picture, things like that with teens is so important, but because it really honestly, especially when it comes to that radical gender theory, trans ideologies, it has, it can have not just spiritually destructive consequences, but permanent physical 
uh, consequences where if literally if if our kids buy these things they, they might decide at 14 years old to go have a double mastectomy because they think they're a different gender and then come to deeply regret that or have some kind of a surgery to where they can never bear their own children I mean these are these are ideas where it's not just in the theoretical anymore for our young people these are like life and death and have absolutely important and physical consequences that could bear themselves out for a lifetime of irreversible damage, as the book talks about by Abigail, I think it's Abigail Schreier about the trans ideology. So we have to root them in truth and help them understand that these aren't things that you just decide on a whim or that you decide based on some internal compass, uh, who you are, what you are, what kind of a thing you are, what's your purpose that you don't you don't choose that. And actually, I have found that with young people, that's actually a relief for them to discover that, that actually it's not on them to have to decide all those things. Yeah. And I think that's where the gospel can be so beautiful to young people. Yeah. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier with freedom, right? It's actually freeing yeah. to know, oh, wait, I don't have to spend my whole childhood thinking about who am I really? And who do I want right. to be? What's what's the authentic part of me everyone's talking about that I need to get back to and dig down to? It is so liberating to realize, wait, somebody yeah. made me and that makes me valuable. That makes me something so much more than whoever I think that I am. I'm so much more than the sum of my physical parts and whatever right. I happen to think about those physical parts. And I, I'm, I'm loving hearing that you might do a curriculum or something like that might come down the pike and I'm sure that that will be added value even more but you know but I would encourage any parent who is listening to just get the book now and start talking about these things because like you're describing they're so important and they're so fundamental to the big life questions that teen girls especially are struggling with and teen boys also but I know that yeah. you know just that whole language conversation we we're talking about these are the the words that are grabbing our girls hearts especially that they need to to hear about. Well, Elisa, thank you so much for the time today. This has been so insightful as always. Love the book and encourage everyone to get a copy. It comes out this week and uh, it's it's amazing. So get a copy, do study groups in your church, get people together, all those kinds of good things. And I know that it will be a fantastic tool for people to really dig in and think about living your truth and all of these other lies. So thanks so much for joining me today. Always fun, Natasha. Thanks. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening today. And as always, I would really appreciate it if you would take the time, if you're enjoying the show, to tell a friend about it and or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever player that you're listening on. It helps people to find out about the show, and I appreciate it a lot. Thanks so much, and I will talk with you soon.